2: In 1988, Anthony Fauci was just a few years into his job as director of America's top infectious disease agency. With the toll of the AIDS epidemic passing 100,000 dead, he received angry letters from gay rights activists calling him a murderer for failing to find a treatment. As a speaker at the 4th International Conference on AIDS that year, he was also caught up in a more unusual attack. Floppy disks labelled as AIDS education software were mailed to conference attendees. The disks contained malicious code, a virus that locked computer files. The victim's printer spat out a ransom demand. Restoring access required mailing $189 to a P.O. box in Panama. The man behind the stunt was Harvard trained evolutionary biologist Joseph Popp. His lawyers said he was a Robin Hood raising money to fund alternative AIDS education programs. But In the end, a judge ruled him unfit to stand trial on grounds of insanity. The doctor had taken to wearing a cardboard box on his head. Mad or not, Dr. Pop had launched the first ever ransomware attack, while the internet was in its infancy. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is America properly protected from cyber attack? A ransomware attack shut down one of America's biggest fuel pipelines Drivers have been warned not to panic buy petrol ahead of the Memorial Day weekend. And meanwhile, the Biden administration's spending plans involve expanding America's high-tech energy infrastructure, increasing opportunities for this kind of internet-enabled ambush. How vulnerable is America? With me as ever to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the US Digital Editor. Charlotte, how are you doing?
3: I am well. I'm actually due to have a baby pretty soon, and I had one of those scans in which the technician dutifully prints out pictures of your baby and pretends to think they're cute even when your baby looks like Gollum. But I'm getting close and excited.
2: That is very exciting. It also means this is going to be your last appearance on the podcast for a little bit. But we're going to have a rolling cast of people attempting to do the impossible and stand in for you. Uh, Fatsman, have you got any news that can rival that? Nope, not even close.
4: No babies. Um, I am not going anywhere. I am dug into this podcast like a tick. <laughs> uh, the news story that has delighted me most this week has been the imminent appointment of Rahm Emanuel. As US ambassador to the most deferential, polite, rules obsessed country on earth. Um, I don't know who came up with it. There's an episode of The Simpsons in which The Simpsons went to Japan and the sight gag was Homer continually walking straight through rice paper doors. I think that's what we're in for for the next few years.
2: Yeah, that is going to be interesting to watch. And for the staff in the Tokyo embassy, you have our sympathies, if any of you are listening. I think all of us over the years have interviewed Rahm Emanuel, former chief of staff to Barack Obama, former mayor of Chicago. And he has an inventive way of swearing um, and manages to cram more swear words into a single paragraph than I think anyone else I've ever met.
3: My favorite thing about Rahm Emanuel is that he was a ballet dancer.
2: You should have saved that for the quiz. That's great trivia. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's that's first-rate trivia. I didn't know that. I'm not awarding points, but if I were, you'd, you'd start with five, Charlotte. I'll more. take it. So, Charlotte, as this is your last episode before your maternity leave, we're going to make you really work on it. You've been writing about the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack this week. Can you tell us a bit more about it, please?
3: Colonial Pipeline is the type of infrastructure that no one thinks about at all until all of a sudden there's a problem and then everyone thinks about it all the time. And it's a pipeline that stretches from Texas all the way up to New Jersey, and it supplies nearly half of the East Coast's gasoline and diesel, and so therefore is hugely important. And then on Friday into Saturday evening, officials confirmed that there had been a cyber attack on Colonial Pipelines business, not on the on the pipeline itself, but there was a ransomware attack that prompted the company to shut down this enormously important pipeline. Officials confirmed that the perpetrators were Darkseid, which is a cyber gang believed to be based in Russia or somewhere in the former Soviet Union. And to get an idea of the impact of the shutdown, I spoke with Michael Tran, who is a commodity strategist at RBC Capital Markets. And he told me it's a big deal, both because of the location of the attack and the timing.
5: We're ramping up for what we believe is going to be a hellacious summer of driving after we've all been hibernating for the past 15 months. So timing-wise going to a very strong summer driving season when you may have gasoline shortages, that's extremely detrimental to the consumer. And it's hitting the area in the US that's the least energy secure. The Northeast really feeds themselves hand to mouth off of that colonial pipeline. So this attack is really striking, not even a major artery, it's the major pipeline artery in the U.S.
3: That's interesting, because as you saw during the Trump administration, there were lots of claims of energy independence and new energy security that came from the shale boom. So what does this attack show about America's energy security and how we should think about the nature of having security?
5: This is a fantastic question. The bottom line here is, barrels, we'd like to think about as fungible. Infrastructure is not. The idea that you look at aggregate imports and aggregate exports from a single country and say, well, the math makes it seem like this country is a net exporter, The holistic high-level view like that just simply does not work for a country that's as geographically bifurcated as the U.S. is in terms of energy production in one part of the country, i.e. the Gulf Coast, and significant slats of demand on the West Coast and on the, the U.S. East Coast as well. So attacks on key arteries like Colonial really lift the hood on just how vulnerable the U.S. is from an energy security perspective.
3: Looking ahead over the next few days, what are you watching to gauge how severe the implications of this attack might be?
5: So what I think is is really key is clearly duration. For several days, the Colonial Pipeline did not give indication on how long this pipeline would be offline for. The way I think about this is this is really an earthquake that is happening. And with each passing hour or day, as we start to run down our, our fuel through significant portions of the eastern seaboard, the magnitude of this earthquake just gets larger and larger and larger.
3: What about the inventory levels? Why aren't they inflated from um, pandemic-related reduction in demand? Presumably, there should be more stores of oil around?
5: Yeah, you know, it's it's a good question. When you look at the U.S. East Coast in particular, like we think that you have about 19.7 days of demand cover, which means that if you don't, supply that region, the East Coast essentially goes bone dry in less than 20 days. Now, to your point, look, there's not as many people driving or flying right now, why don't we just have more fuel? Well, the answer is because refiners have just simply not been running as hard. We're edging on the highest retail gasoline prices that we've seen in more than half a decade. And it's only May, summer driving season has yet to begin. What we're seeing now with the colonial pipeline outage This is really going to hit the pocketbook of consumers on the East Coast.
3: When you think about how the Biden administration is responding to this and also some of the proposals that they've put forward as part of the infrastructure bill, do you think that companies and the government have this problem in hand that they're taking it seriously
5: enough? What I think is is really important is that the Biden administration has really made a big push towards energy transition. Now, I don't, I don't like the term energy transition. I much prefer energy evolution. And the reason why is because if you talk about a transition, it sounds like you're fully moving away from fossil fuels. And I think that, that this really lifts the hood in terms of how vulnerable we are as a society, in terms of how quickly can we actually move off of fossil fuels, off of oil and gas, if you, know, you can get intermittent attacks like this that really put the pain point to, to U.S. consumers. Charlotte,
2: the pipeline is now back up and running. So how much did this shutdown matter? How seriously should we take it? How worried should we be? How much is it a portend of how things might go in the future?
3: Well, to start, the pipeline has started resuming operations, but it's not fully restored. Supplies are not fully restored, so it's unclear exactly when they will be. The second thing to keep in mind is that there's an issue that's not just due to the outage of the pipeline, but the responding behavior of consumers. So in the oil shocks of the 1970s, part of why there were such severe gasoline or petrol shortages is because people lined up at gas stations, they got really nervous, they wanted to fill up their tanks. And you've seen that already in recent days, and that can really exacerbate the situation. So GasBuddy is a data provider that crowdsources data on outages at fuel stations. As of Thursday morning, about half of gas stations in Georgia were reporting outages. Same in South Carolina and Virginia. Interestingly, in Florida, you also had a huge number of gas stations with outages, even though it isn't served by the Colonial Pipeline. So you can have one incident that has a ripple effect, which I think this incident revealed. The other thing that I think is worth keeping in mind is, as you heard from Mike Tram, Colonial Pipeline is not some random little pipeline serving sparsely populated section of the country. It's the main conduit that serves the entire East Coast. And so if you can have a ransomware attack that goes after that pipeline, it gives a deal of both companies' efforts to date and how they're unable to deal with some of these threats, and also gives a window into... The failure of government to properly police this stuff. And so, uh, for instance, the TSA, which has control over and oversight over securing oil and gas pipelines, the Government Accountability Office, which likes to tell everybody else what they're doing wrong, has been hammering on about this for years. They had a report in 2019 saying that the TSA didn't have proper oversight of assessing risks to pipelines. So it's not that the problem is new, it's that people haven't adequately been able to adapt
4: but, can I ask you a question about something that Mike Tran said? I think I, I know the answer, but I'd just like to clarify it. He said that the aftershocks of this would be would be hitting people in the pocketbooks on the East Coast through the spring and early summer. Is that because supply won't be fully restored or because he's worried about panic buying or some combination of the two?
3: Well, it's some combination of the two because we don't really know when panic buying might subside, which is clearly already underway. We don't know when supplies will fully be restored. And then we also don't know uh, how quickly demand will pick up. So demand always climbs around Memorial Day. More people are getting on the road. People want to take vacation. As Mike said, people may do that more so this year than in prior years. They're really eager to get out and about. And one thing that's interesting is that Donald Trump was really aware of gasoline prices when OPEC, um, the oil cartel, was having a big meeting, he would send out tweets when he was concerned that the gas price was getting too high and tell OPEC that it needed to boost production. Biden doesn't do that kind of thing, but he's clearly very focused on gas prices right now, in part because it's part of this broader conversation about inflation in America's economy, where you see prices rising across the board, and a hike in gasoline prices would be pretty harmful, and also um, not something that plays well to him politically. On Wednesday, you saw gas prices, average gas prices, top $3 a gallon for the first time in six years. That's not great for him.
4: It does. I'm sure Biden is concerned because it sort of implicates inflation worries, but it also implicates the energy transition that he wants to preside over, right? And one of the things Mike said that caught my attention was that this sort of attack he thought would impede that transition rather than facilitate it or create political support for it. I mean, to my mind, it's suggesting anything we can do to move beyond these single attackable arteries is a good idea. I wonder why do you think he said that we would impede the transition rather than help build support for it?
3: Well, I don't want to put words in Mike's mouth, but there are a few reasons why people might make that argument. One is that there are some people who look at the Biden administration's approach to pipelines more broadly and say, You know, the government should be supporting more pipelines. It should Biden shouldn't have canceled the Keystone XL, for instance, because clearly we need more energy infrastructure to improve American energy security. The Keystone XL would have absolutely no impact on this particular problem. The colonial pipeline brings refined products. So The type of gasoline that you can put into your car or put into jet fuel that you can put into a plane, and it brings it to the East Coast and the Northeast. The Keystone XL would bring unrefined products to an entirely different part of the country. So it's a a bit misleading to focus on that. But you can see how Biden's political opponents would seize on the idea that the Biden administration is hostile to oil infrastructure and say that's a bad thing. And then the other thing to keep in mind is just how quickly Biden wants to electrify the economy, which brings a different set of risks.
2: Okay, thank you both. We'll look at how the colonial attack compares to previous cyber attacks on America in a moment. First, usual reminder, there's never been a finer time to subscribe to The Economist, if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. This week, our data team has published an estimate of the true global death toll from COVID-19, and it points to a huge undercount in poor and middle-income countries. Meanwhile, our economics team looks at inflation in America, and there's a brilliant review of a new novel by the Democratic Party star Stacey Abrams. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. As we heard earlier, ransomware attacks began way back in the early days of personal computers. How does the colonial pipeline attack compare with cyber attacks that have come before? The Economist's defense editor is Shashank Joshi. He took some time in a hectic week presenting The Intelligence, our daily podcast, to help me put it into context.
0: When we hear the word cyber attack, I think it conjures up big, destructive attacks. Pipelines blowing up, power grids going down. I think those are very rare what we actually tend to see is all sorts of of things happening in cyberspace. That can be criminal, uh, stealing money, fraud. It can be information operations like the Russian campaign to shape America's election in 2016. Or it can be old-fashioned espionage, stealing secrets. And, you know, I think the word attack sometimes takes us astray. If a Russian agent uh, was stealing secrets and had recruited a, a official inside the White House, we would treat that very differently to a Russian agent blowing up a government building. And yet when it comes to cyberspace, I think we sometimes run all of these different types of activity into one idea, one fuzzy concept.
2: Does the motivation, the different motivation for these attacks change how easy or hard it is to defend against them? I mean, I would assume that somebody planting ransomware in the hope of getting 100000 or maybe $200,000 out of a company, that might be easier to defend against than
0: a state-backed attacker. But am, am I wrong about that? You know, I, I think we tend to assume that if a state like Russia or China conducts a cyber attack, it, it has to be sophisticated and, and really fancy. And if a criminal group does something, it, it's basic, straightforward, and you can read off these things. That isn't the case. You know, Russia's ability to penetrate the Democratic Party in 2016 wasn't using special, ultra-fancy cyber weapons. It was using pretty basic phishing against a Democratic Party official, as we know. And what we've seen from some criminal groups is very advanced, sophisticated attacks that actually go much further than many states. So it isn't that easy. But I think if you're trying to deter a cyber attack, it really does make a difference if you're targeting uh, someone who is sitting in the Kremlin and may therefore be influenced by travel bans, having their name published, um, having sanctions put on them, or whether you're influencing a small-time criminal group based in Eastern Europe who may have no interest in sanctions and, and brush them off. And Shasheng, how does this attack on Colonial Pipeline compare with others we've
2: seen either in the US or abroad?
0: Well, Colonial Pipeline's a juicy target, but this was a pretty mild attack. It didn't strike for example the operational systems that actually pump the oil and you know the system's up and running again what we've seen in other places is much more destruction so for example a few years ago in Ukraine we saw a Russian attack on the power grid in Ukraine that took out vital systems and shut down the power to to Kiev in the middle of a really bitter winter we haven't seen a really substantial state-sponsored cyber attack like that in America but I think we've seen many, many warning signs on water facilities, on pipelines, Russian probing in power grids that suggest it's something that could still happen down the line. And the colonial pipeline attack has been attributed to Dark Side,
2: a group aptly named that seems to hail from the former Soviet Union. How is such attribution made? How clearly can cyber experts say, oh, this is the work of this group as opposed to that group?
0: I think many people think cyber attribution is really hard and may remember President Trump saying the uh, hack on America's election may have been by a 400-pound teenager in their basement. That isn't the case. Actually, state agencies, intelligence agencies, are now very good at attribution. They're really good, for example, at looking at the code that's been used in an attack and finding the fingerprints that point to one state, and not just a, a given state, but the specific intelligence service within that state, whether it was Russia's SVR or Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU, you. Attribution has come a long way. I think the challenge we have in the case of a group like Dark Side, which, as you say, many people think is based in Russia, is to ask, how do we know the degree of connection between the Russian state and these criminal groups? We know there is something of a connection. We know that these groups are allowed to operate out of Russian soil, but do they have their targets chosen for them, or is it more of a passive relationship? I think that political relationship is something that still isn't completely known with any confidence.
2: How well would you say the US is protected against cyber attacks?
0: America's protected pretty badly against cyber attacks. And in that, it probably isn't very different to most advanced countries. The difference being America simply has a bigger digital infrastructure to protect. It has a bigger attack surface. Last year, there was a big commission, a congressionally mandated commission called the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, and it concluded that America was, quote, dangerously insecure in cyberspace. Uh, It said these networks were vulnerable, already compromised, that America had lost hundreds of billions of dollars to state-sponsored intellectual property theft, and that the attacks weren't just big set piece attacks that hit the headlines these were day to day things that were you know slowly gutting american companies of their trade secrets that were slowly holding police forces local governments hostage to ransomware this was a problem really of of mass not of acute exquisite sophisticated attacks by russians in the kremlin but really day to day campaigns hammering america all the time John,
2: for several years now, committees in the Senate and the House have been worrying about foreign actors getting hold of America's vital infrastructure, the energy grid, something else, and what might be done to protect it. But if you take the colonial pipeline attack, the attack on a water treatment plant in Florida, the attacks on Baltimore and Atlanta that cost a lot of money for those cities to fix... These all seem to be coming from private actors who are after a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and typically get paid. As indeed it looks like the uh, ransomware attackers who who went after the Colonial Pipeline have now been paid.
4: Yeah, they have been done by private actors. This has also been carried out on on private entities, and that that highlights a real complexity in responding to cyber attacks and cyber crime more broadly. Shoshank and I wrote a piece together last year. About the cyber solarium and, and one of the issues it raised is just how deeply interconnected the public and private responses have to be right it 's true that colonial pipeline was a, was a was a private entity, but it has almost a quasi public function in the sense that it supplies essential fuel to millions and millions of people and so there is a role for government to respond i mean it 's the same issue when it comes to prosecuting uh, cyber crimes right How do you prosecute for instance an entity in one country that routes through servers in a second to attack targets in a third. I think it highlights the need for governments and law enforcement to to think more creatively about what the response needs to be, what sort of deterrence they need to practice, and who has the ultimate say. I know that one of the things mooted in Congress this morning was that there should be some sort of public-private entity to monitor and publicize, when necessary, cyber attacks. And that highlights the deeply interconnected nature of the grid between between public and private actors.
3: It's interesting, though, because there is, in my reporting, I've had some people tell me that there is reticence within the private sector sometimes to cooperate too much with the public sector because the government's own infrastructure is seen as being vulnerable to attack. So some companies make the decision, we're better off actually on our own, and we don't want to become too linked with government actors because that could just present another form of vulnerability.
2: There's that, and also the fact that companies often don't want to admit that they've been hacked if they can possibly avoid it, right? Because they're worried about scaring off their customers.
4: Yeah, that's the question. What is their duty to respond? From the standpoint of public goods, from public awareness, we should know when a private company is hacked, right? But they also have good economic incentives not to do so.
3: There is a reporting system for electricity outages and uh, explanations for why there might have been an outage but it's grouped under this general heading of vandalism, attack, or sabotage. And so that encompasses quite a lot, right? I mean, it's not particularly specific. And so I think, John, you're right, that there is a degree, um, I think, uh, understandable desire not to incite broader panic in the public. At the same time, you need to be able to track this clearly in order to understand the scale and nature of the risk. One of the things that is interesting about this week's attack is that Darkseid as we've heard, is thought to be based either in Russia or in the former Soviet Union. And Biden, when he's talking about the attack, did not blame Russia, but he did say that Russia was responsible for helping to deal with the attack. And this is something that Christopher Krebs, who was the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, basically the main cybersecurity guy from 2018 through November 2020, he's spoken about how uh, even when you don't have state-sponsored activities, there are some safe havens for criminal groups where they don't really mind that, you know, Russia doesn't particularly mind if there might be um, a private actor that's participating in cyber crimes that has a benefit of making life more difficult for strategic adversaries, is the language that Krebs has used. So you do see this kind of murky territory between private actors that are based in countries that uh, might not have America's best interests at heart and the official actions of those governments.
2: Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to talk about the political ramifications of all this for the Biden administration. Charlotte, you've been thinking about what this attack might mean for America's energy infrastructure and for the plans to upgrade it.
3: Yes. And thinking about the way that America's cyber risks evolve, in my beat, I obviously pay the most attention to energy infrastructure, but there are other different vulnerabilities that could continue to multiply. And I spoke with Amy Myers Jaffe of Tufts University, who also happens to have written a new book called Energy's Digital Future, and asked her about this.
1: We're talking about the jugular of the US fuel system. It's really a wake up call. The United States is at a Sputnik moment. When the Soviets first launched a satellite faster than we did, we had to mobilize. I think this is the same when it comes to cyber and asymmetric warfare. We are just dramatically behind where we should be.
3: So, is that a problem of? coordination. I was noting in my own research, looking at all the different agencies that are supposedly involved in protecting American energy infrastructure. Is it a matter of coordination? Is it a matter of funding? Is it a matter of technical expertise, all of the above? What's to blame here?
1: I don't really think the problem is a coordinating role. Think about how successful the United States has been in rolling out the vaccines for COVID. I mean, amazing logistical success. So we're a country that has that ability. But if you look at the budget for the cybersecurity and infrastructure agency, CISA, the 2022 budget was calling for an extra $110 million on its roughly $2 billion budget. You know, we're talking about a $1 trillion infrastructure bill. The idea that we're only spending $2 billion on cyber, the proportionality there is not recognizing the importance of the issue.
3: So I wanted to ask you about Biden's infrastructure bill broadly, because we've been talking about oil infrastructure, but of course there's a lot of attention in the infrastructure bill to transmission, to smart grids, to ramping up EV charging. And those steps are necessary to deal with climate change, but there's also an argument that they could make the grid more vulnerable Is that correct? Are there new vulnerabilities that are introduced as we electrify more of the economy and as the electric grid changes?
1: You are greatly increasing um, the surface area for cyber attention. If you're going to put in all these new digital devices, you know, if I've got a digital thermostat in my home, it means I can't manually turn on my heat. If there's an electricity outage, then I'm without electricity and without heat. If I have Alexa controlling everything, including my car, the charging of my car, and then I'm increasing the footprint for how a hacker could get in and throw off my entire ability to do anything. The whole digital transformation is hinging on our ability to keep these networks secure. In addition to more
3: money, what does a sensible cybersecurity strategy look like?
1: People have always saying, with clean energy has sort of become almost like a, a, a slogan that has lost its meaning. But when we talk about the space race, you know, one of the best elements of that was it mobilized an entire generation of people to go into science for a unified mission. And I don't know how we inspire people in the United States. Like maybe having people wake up in the morning in Virginia and there's no gasoline might convince younger people that want a different future that they have to mobilize. They have to work in cyber. They have to stop making apps for angry birds. They need to focus on national security. This is a moment to come together and make sure that all these carbon saving technologies can be done in a way that enhances our national security.
2: Charlotte, Amy there talked about the growing surface area for attacks with all the sort of smart devices, smart meters, smart everything else that are online. How quickly is all of that changing? I mean, we've been writing about it for quite a long time, the Internet of Things. Is it here now?
3: It is. And you can see this. It's not just the Internet of Things, but there are a whole different range of technical innovations that are happening at the same time that together have the net effect of really expanding the opportunities for hackers to gain entry points in particular to the grid. So Chris Krebs, who I mentioned earlier, he had this great line in Senate testimony just this month where he said, and I'm going to quote him directly because it was quite compelling. He said, the underlying enabling factors for the cybercrime explosion are rooted in the digital dumpster fire of our seemingly pathological need to connect everything to the internet, combined with how hard it is to actually secure what we have connected. And so if you think about, um, clearly there are, the, there are things like Alexa, which can control all manner of devices in your home. There are also toys that are internet enabled that have gotten attention. Um, GPS systems provide an opportunity for hackers, and then VPNs. I mean, we've all been connecting with each other through VPN over the past year. There are more and more opportunities for remote work. You saw the Florida incident. What happened there was there was a worker at a water treatment plant in a small city, 15,000 people in Florida, and he was sitting at his desk, and he saw his mouse cursor moving kind of weirdly, and he didn't think much of it. And then a little later in the day, he he was sitting at his computer, and his mouse was going into uh, different software that changed the levels of sodium hydroxide in the city's water supply from a hundred parts per million to over eleven thousand parts per million. And he was able to change it back. But that just gives you an idea of the types of vulnerabilities that are emerging.
4: Yeah, I'm quite taken by the call to have a cybersecurity entity and government basically function like the FDA, in the sense the FDA Imposes minimum standards of safety for food manufacturers. I'd like to see some minimum standards of cybersecurity safety met for private entities in America. How feasible do you think that is, Charlotte? Both from the private and public sector perspective.
3: Well, it's interesting in that Florida incident. It was they were running outdated Microsoft software across multiple computers. I mean, just kind of blatantly insecure operations. But the thing is, is that these hackers also are getting much more sophisticated over time, and they're going after bigger targets because they've seen that it can pay off. So if you look at uh, data from a company called Coveware, which tracks this stuff, the size of companies targeted by ransomware attacks and the size of average ransom payments have really shot up. Over the past year, the average ransomware payment has shot up by um, about double, 100%. So I think that the incentive for people to perpetrate these attacks is growing, and that underlines just how important this is for the government to take seriously and for private actors to take seriously.
2: John, let's get into the politics of all of this. Politicians of a certain vintage, Joe Biden falls into this, are hypersensitive towards the gas price in America. They worry about their approval ratings being closely tied to the price of gas at the petrol pump, particularly in holiday season. And also you have this bigger thing going on, which is the Biden administration would like ideally to completely redesign America's infrastructure and push electrification uh, in America. And that presents a whole series of challenges when it comes to vulnerabilities to cyber attacks.
4: Yes. So it seems to me you can make an argument in favor of a more distributed grid, that you wouldn't have this one artery that's vulnerable, could wipe out gas supplies to the entire Southeast and East Coast. On the other hand, you would then have more entities vulnerable to more cyber attacks. Um, But you're right, there is the Jimmy Carter hangover, right, in the sense that there were long gas lines in the late 70s, there was high inflation, and you're starting to see shades of both of those Now And so I would expect the White House is monitoring this very closely. Um, You know, on the other hand, a shift away from gas is going to have to be accompanied by some sort of price signaling. I think it's just that the government needs better control over price signaling what it has gotten in the wake of this pipeline attack.
2: Charlotte, what do you make of the argument John just made that electrification ought to be more secure than what we currently have, and therefore the kind of infrastructure changes that the Biden administration wants to see will be less hackable rather than more hackable?
3: There's widespread agreement that the grid needs to evolve for a number of reasons. One is that it needs to facilitate the deployment of clean energy, and it does need to become smarter, more able to adapt to intermittent sources of energy like solar and wind, as you put a lot more EVs on the grid, it just needs to become more flexible. As you do electrify more activities, including transportation, also eventually heating, the impact of a blackout is wider. So you have these two priorities for the grid. One is to have it emit fewer greenhouse gases, and then the other is to make it more secure. Those are two huge challenges. They're not mutually exclusive, however, You don't have to think that electrification just de facto makes everything less secure, or indeed that you should abandon the electrification of vehicles, for instance, in the name of energy security, because as we've just seen, petrol and gasoline supplies are vulnerable in a different way.
2: Okay, thanks, Charlotte. Our colleague Daniel Knowles, who's been writing about ransomware for The Economist as well, compares ransomware to plane hijacking in the 1970s, something that was inexplicably easy and massively consequential. So let's turn from ransomware to something that's neither easy nor consequential. It's quiz time. Ransom was a regular topic in The Economist back in 1843, the year we launched. Britain was using gangster tactics to open up global trade at the time. A $21 million indemnity was extracted from which country after Royal Navy gunboats sailed up the Pearl River. Sailed up the Pearl River? Wouldn't that be China?
3: Yeah, seems likely,
2: but I don't know. It was Qing Dynasty China. You both get points for that. The paper featured regular updates on the so-called ransom of Canton. Guangzhou, as we now call the city, was bombarded by the British in the first opium war. The Economist described nine and a half tons of Chinese silver brought under armed guard on a special train to London, where, quote, the specie was conveyed to the mint. The Royal Mint Building was acquired by the Chinese government for the site of its new London embassy in 2018 in a sort of revenge real estate deal. Migrant labourers from Canton staged the biggest strike in America in 1867. Which massive infrastructure project were they working on? The
4: Transcontinental Railroad.
3: Yeah, it was the railroad in, in Pennsylvania, I think.
2: It was the Pacific Railroad.
3: Does it start in Pennsylvania? Do I have any redeeming knowledge?
2: Well, no, not really. <laughs> it was the Pacific Railroad, which eventually became the Transcontinental Railroad. So I think a point for Fasman there. The Chinese workers were demanding equal pay to White's. At one point, 90% of workers on the Central Pacific Railroad were Chinese. China was as close to the West Coast in travel time as the eastern U.S. was before the railway was completed in 1869. Oh. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, John. And thank you, Charlotte. And good luck. And we look forward to having you back as soon as we can. Yeah, we'll miss you, Charlotte. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks also to John Shields and to Nico Rofast for producing. Thanks also to our research team, Erica Shin, Elizabeth Pete, Noor Abraham and Milton Vargas. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.